chapter 2. Hey, no matter where you are, on the way from Bethlehem to the ascension of Jesus, everybody can relate to the story of Luke chapter 2. Some of you have a very public role in God's kingdom work. That is, you're on the front lines. That is, that you do work for the church or you're doing something that you feel like directly contributes to the kingdom of God. You're visible. You're public. And others of you um, have a very behind-the-scenes feel to your, to your story. You, you, um, you pray quietly in the background. You let other people with gifts be the ones who are in public view, and you are quietly supporting them. Listen, whatever your story, whatever your gifts, whatever your role, the story of Luke chapter 2 has a place for you and becomes your story. Whether you can relate to Mary and Joseph, or you can relate to Simeon, or you can relate to Anna. As the gospel story becomes your story, it grips you, it holds you, it invites you to view everything about your life through it. And no matter what your role is in the kingdom of God, we all have one thing that's in common. We all have one thing that's in common. One thing we all must do, and therefore it's important for us to give attention to it, listen for it, as Amanda reads for us from Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. And there was the prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your word and would you marinate our hearts in it? And would you by it change us? I pray for the children in the room that you'll help them to listen to your word, that they may walk away changed, that the sermon's not just for their mom and dad. I pray for the adults in the room to listen and give heed to your word because the sermon's not just for those who they think need to hear it, it's for them. It's for me. So change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Time and tide wait for no man, the great novelist Charles Dickens once wrote. Charles Dickens said, time and tide wait for no man. And Ron Ingram learned that the hard way. Just a couple of days ago on Thanksgiving Day, Ron Ingram set sail from Molokai Island to go to Lanai across the Illinois Channel in his 25-foot boat. It was his strong and mighty fishing vessel, the Malia. He'd had many fishing victories in this boat through the years. He was a very experienced sailor. But even though his ship was mighty and strong, it was no match for the 20-foot waves that came out of nowhere in the midst of the Illinois Channel. And despite his expertise at being able to sail, the current from the Illinois Channel between the Hawaiian islands of Molokoi and Lanai, he found himself being pushed further and further out the channel and into sea. And Ron Ingram, knowing that he was in trouble, got on his radio and he says, Mayday, Mayday. I'm in the Illinois Channel, and I'm drifting out to sea, and I can't get back. Shh. 
Nothing but static on the other side. So here's Ron Ingram, this expert fisherman in his 25-foot boat, the Malia, drifting further and further out to sea, out the Illinois Channel in Hawaii. Mayday, mayday, he said, after the third day with no response. Shh. It's 2014. Mayday, mayday. I'm in the Illinois Channel and I'm going out to sea. A week passes. Ron Ingram is still on his little boat, the Malia. This didn't happen in 1620. This happened two weeks ago. Day eight. Day nine. Day 10. Mayday, mayday. I'm in the Illinois Channel on the Malia. Shh. With all the advancements in technology, all the recon and rescue that the Coast Guard can do today. Ron Ingram was floating out to sea. Listen, time and tide wait for no man. And Ron Ingram learned that just a couple of weeks ago the hard way. And lost sailors on Thanksgiving Day are not the only people who have to wait in their life, are they? Who else? You and me. And of all the Christian disciplines, the Puritans used to say, of all the Christian disciplines, waiting is the one we have the most to learn about. And that's true in my life, because I do not like to wait. But Christianity calls us to be a people in waiting. They are a people who are waiting for the redemption, just as Anna says, the redemption of Jerusalem, for the redeeming of all things. Listen, Christianity is unlike any other world religion. In every other world religion, waiting is bad. It's bad news. You don't want to wait. Think about it. In, in Judaism, you don't want to wait. You want to get to work and you want to fulfill the Torah, right? What about Islam? Waiting is not a virtue. Go get busy. Keep the five pillars. Prayer, giving alms, meditation. Those are the things you should do. Waiting is a liability. And Buddhism, oh, don't wait. Go and through your own effort and your self-discipline, you will have the higher life, the fulfilled life as you advance toward nirvana. Every other religion in the world, friends, waiting is bad news. And it seems only natural for it to be bad, doesn't it? I mean, time and tide, do not wait, Charles Dickens once said. That's true. It seems so unnatural for us to have to wait. But the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we wait on a God who acts on our behalf. And so if we are going to have to wait, if it's part and parcel of our Christian walk, then we, we might as well figure out how to do it. And that's where Anna comes in. When I, when I read Luke chapter 2, usually it's, you read it around Christmas and you blow through Simeon and Anna because you're trying to get to the good parts, right? The part about Jesus and the baby. But Luke wants you, he wants Theophilus, who he wrote this book to, to stop and to learn from Anna the art of waiting. And the story of Anna in these three very short verses, 36, 37, and 38, give us three resources for how to wait. If we're going to have to try it on for size, we might as well figure out how to do it, right? So let's look together. 
Anna gives us three resources to equip us to wait for the return of our Savior. And waiting is worth it for the Christian because God will finish what he started. What resources does Anna give us? First, Anna gives us the word of God. Notice as you read the story or heard it read to you, notice the way it was described. Luke says that Anna is Phanuel's daughter. Listen, Phanuel is a well-known dude. Everybody knows Phanuel. And if you're doubting the validity of the story that Luke tells, just go ask him. The Phanuel, you know Phanuel, he's from the tribe of Asher. Luke gives us details about who she belongs to, her family, because Luke wants you to know that she's not made up. And if you doubt, go ask Phanuel. And not only is she the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, Luke also says that she's a prophetess. And not only is she a prophetess, she is in fact the only explicit prophetess mentioned in the New Testament. Did you know that? That means if she's a prophetess, it means that she is in line with the prophets of God. She is telling you God's word. She's in line with other female prophets like Deborah, the great military leader in Judges. Or in 2 Kings 22, she's in line with Huldah who they had a scroll that they thought was Deuteronomy, but they weren't sure. And so they brought it to the prophetess Huldah in 2 Kings 22. And Huldah says, indeed, this is the scroll of the Lord. She was a prophetess, bringing God's word to bear on the people. Now, whenever you start thinking prophetesses and prophets in Tulsa, Oklahoma, people's minds go in a thousand directions. But before the New Testament was written, that's how God communicated to his people, wasn't it? He, he used prophets and he used prophetesses. But by the end of the first century, God didn't just use the verbal word of God through prophets and prophetesses. He used the written down word of God so that by the time that John finishes the book of Revelation toward the end of the first century, God's scripture was indeed closed. The, the standard, the canon of scripture was closed. And for about 267 years, the early church argued and struggled back and forth because there were lots of other letters written in the early church. The Gospel of Thomas, other pseudonymous, uh, pseudonyms that said, this is from Peter, this is from Paul. And the disciples had to determine what was actually really from God. So that by the time 367 A.D. comes around, it was a man named Athanasius of Alexandria who in an Easter letter, his 39th Easter letter, he declares these are the 66 books that should be in the Bible. And up until that point in time, there were all kinds of lists, but in 367, Athanasius said these are the 66. And you know what's interesting? Ever since 367 A.D., both the Eastern Church, that is the Eastern Orthodox Church today, and the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and all of the, uh, the Protestant faiths that protested against it and have emerged from it, they all believe in the 66 books of the New Testament. So when you look at your Bible today, there are 66 books. The Catholics add 22 more of them called the Apocrypha. But beginning in 367, the canon of scripture was not only closed, but identified as such. So that today, when you read about Anna, the prophetess, 
You should think, just as Anna declared to you the word of the Lord then, how do you hear from God's word today? Do you hear from prophets and prophetesses today? Well, how do you know if they're true or not? Deuteronomy 18 says, if, they, if their prophecy doesn't come to pass, what should you do? They should be killed. I don't see a whole lot of killing going on today when things are proclaimed as prophecy. And God spares us because he gives us his word. There's one thing you can know about the Bible. When you, when you think you're hearing from God, it's hard to know if it's the Holy Spirit or it's your bean burrito from the night before. But when you read the Bible, it is indeed God's word. And it is the authoritative source in your life. And therefore, it is the place we should go to feast and to marinate on the truth of Scripture. God has made it crystal clear for us, whereas in the past, He used prophets to proclaim God's Word. Today, He gives us His written Word, which tells us of His living Word, Jesus the Christ, who came to live the life you couldn't live and die the death you should have died. The first resource for us in waiting is the Word of God, the Word of Scripture is the word of God. And waiting is worth it, friends, because God will finish what he started. When Ron, when Ron Ingram was out of water, um, he hydrated on fish. You can explain to me how that's possible. I don't want to think about it. But this is what he said. I'm a fisherman, so I caught fish and... Uh, he says, it wasn't as good as the sushi bar, but that's how I hydrated. <laughs> Sometimes waiting in the Christian life tastes like fish water, doesn't it? It's not very appetizing. It doesn't feel very good. But unlike fish water, God's word reminds us what God has done and what he promises still to do. Christians are people in waiting. And if that's true, and it is, then we better know where the truth is found. David said, unlike the fish water that Ron Ingram sucked as he had to wait, that your word, O oh Lord, is sweet to my lips. It is sweeter, Psalm 119.103, than honey. Do you, do you read God's word? Have you read it this week? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just asking an honest question. Like if this is really the lens through which we view the world, this is why worship every week is so important. Because you hear the word of God preached to you. And we call you again and again back to the authority in your life. We have a resource in God's word. It is precious. No longer do we rely on prophets and prophetesses. We rely on the true prophet, Jesus Christ, who has given us his word by his Holy Spirit. Second, notice what it is that Anna is doing as she's waiting. It says that she is fasting day and night at the temple. She's worshiping, it says. And the word wait comes from an old theater term which means to wait for the scene to pass or wait for something on stage to happen so that you can enter. Anna is waiting for something to pass. She is waiting for the Christ child to come. Unlike Simeon, who received a direct revelation of God that he will not die until he sees the Christ child, Anna didn't get that memo. And so she is waiting day and night for the Savior to come. She is waiting, and she's waiting amidst her worshiping of the one true God. 
And what did people in the Old Testament, what did people before the churches formed in Acts, how did they worship God? They used the Old Testament, didn't they? And for Anna, who's praying all day long and she's fasting, what do you think she's reading in the Old Testament? She's probably reading the Psalms, isn't she? And as she's reading down through these Psalms, I can imagine that her eyes lock in on Psalm 33, 20 and 21, which says that we wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice because we trust in his holy name. May your steadfast love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we hope in you. Can you hear her praying that prayer, this woman, every day at the temple? Can you hear yourself praying that prayer? Listen, this time of year is the, one of the hardest times of year for most of us because we see the sirens of every advertisement and we say, you know what? That, that's really, I need that. That would make my life better. And that's what I need. And that skincare product and that new cool technology and that piece of clothing and oh, that, that's what my kids need and that, that'll help me become a better parent. And we get worn out in the waiting and instead of saying, we wait and hope for the Lord. Our identity is not in our possessions. It is in Christ. So often, I, can feel, I turn from those things around Christmas and I say, yeah, yeah, I need those things. Anna says, we wait and hope for the Lord because he is our help and our shield. That ought to be your prayer this Christmas. That was the prayer for Lauren and me on our wedding day. Because inside my wife's wedding ring is that verse. We wait and hope for the Lord because he is our help and our shield. We have no idea what our life's gonna turn out to be. We may end up on the street. We may end up with kids that are so far from Jesus. We may end up with a life totally different than we expected. And so might you. So, so may you be right now. And your prayer, friends, is you wait and hope for the Lord. He is your help and your shield, not your 401k. In him, your hearts rejoice, not in your 4.0, because you trust in his holy name. Oh, may our steadfast love rest upon, may your steadfast love rest upon us, O oh Lord, even as we hope in you. The reason why it's so hard for us to wait as people today in 2004 in Owasso is because we've learned it all backwards. You and I have learned since we were very little kids that the way you get happy is by being successful. And then once you're successful, then you're happy. In other words, if you can just lose five pounds, then you'll be happy. If you can just get that promotion, then you'll be happy. If you can just make senior vice president, then you'll be happy. If you can just have a child, then you'll be happy. If you can just have the house, listen, that's totally backwards. And the Harvard Business School knows that's backwards. Because you know one of the texts that they make their students read now is a text about happiness. Sean Anker wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. And this is what he wrote. The formula for how you become happy is broken. And this book is gonna help you see the rational, reasonable way that you become happy. 
He writes, happiness is not the result of success. It's actually the precursor to greater success. Every single relationship, business and educational outcome improves when the brain is positive first. In other words, success is the result of happiness, not the other way around. And yet many of us work tirelessly we wear ourselves out to say, if this happens in my life, then I'll be happy. If that's true for Harvard Business School students, if they're learning this, how much more should the children of God? Because that's exactly what Scripture says of us. Scripture says of us that you are a child of God if you realize that your own moral self-effort cannot get you any closer to your happiness. Only God can. And by turning from your dead works and looking to Jesus, the one who satisfies the deepest longings of your soul, resting in his finished work, seeing yourself as his son or as his daughter, as his child and no longer a slave, that's the first step to happiness because that's exactly what the Westminster Divine said many years ago. What's the chief end of God? To glorify God and what? To enjoy him forever. We should be people of joy. The church has been leading that research project for millennia, and Harvard Business School is just now catching up. We are people who are able to take joy because of what Jesus has done. And many of you, if you're like me, you know what, the truth of the matter is, you, you, you take joy in your conditions, but not your positions. Like, if I'm having a rough week, therefore I'm really not that happy. I become moody and my life is, you know, crumbling and falling apart. But in Christ, we have a position that can never be taken away from us. And you're reminded of that when you look at God's word. And you're reminded of that every week when you come to worship, which is why it is so important that you come to worship. There are some Sundays that I do not want to be here. And I know there are Sundays that you don't want to be here. But God calls us to be here together because we we're reminded that we have the deep and lasting joy in Jesus because he loves us. And it's out of that incredible love that the Father has for his children that then we go on to be the people he calls us to be. Anna worshiped day and night. She longed for the coming Savior. Friends, you have God's word to be a resource for you. And you have worship to be a resource for you. Because waiting is worth it because God will finish what he started. And that's not all. The third thing you have, look at Anna's life. What does she do in verse 38? Notice the contrasting differences between Simeon and Anna. They were both old. They were both toward the end of their life. They were both longing for the return of Jesus, for the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. But Simeon wanted to die. And Anna wanted to witness. She was 84 years old. And she goes to the ladies, to people who are waiting, and she says, listen, the redemption of Jerusalem is coming. We must wait. Notice how he, she des Luke describes the people that she's talking to in verse 38. It says, and coming up at that hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Some people will say, listen, you went to a church this morning that told you about waiting on God. I've got a real problem with that. Because doesn't waiting on God mean that you have no motivation to love and serve others? Doesn't that take your motivation away? You ever heard that question? In short, the answer is no. It actually gives you more. You ever seen two children who have, one child has a father that's very loving and gracious to him and one child has a father that's very critical and judgmental and harsh in spirit. You ever seen the way those two kids do their chores? The kid who's got the harsh father who is always under the critical eye does these chores in, like, in fear, not knowing what kind of mood his dad's gonna be in when he finishes his chores, whether or not his dad will even accept his good works or not. And so he does them in fear. He leaves them half-baked. He's not really doing them out of joy. He's doing them out of trying to please his father, out of a spirit of fear and of failure. And then you've got the child who knows that he's got his daddy's love. And he goes out to do the chores. And he, he does them gladly. Okay, well, he does them. <laughs> and he does them in a way that has a renewed sense of confidence and motivation, doesn't he? He's not doing them because he knows his father is going to look at him and go, sorry, those sticks aren't straight line. He's going to do them and say, oh, you brought me broken sticks. But you did what I said. And he picks them up in his arms and he sings over him, I love you. And the reason why you and I have a hard time waiting and the reason why many of you have a hard time obeying God's word is because you really don't believe you have a loving father. You're using your father's image your earthly father's image to be the picture of God for you. And he may be a great guy, but your father in heaven loves you. He will not abandon you. He sings over you his love, and it's mighty to save. And you're going to bring back chores that are not completely perfect. But your father's going to pick you up in his arms and say, thank you for obeying me. I love you. And he will sing over you. It doesn't give us less motivation, friends. It gives us more because we have a loving Heavenly Father. Well, does it make, waiting make you lazy? Well, I just sort of answered that question. No, it doesn't make you lazy. Does the butler and do the chefs at the White House, do they just kick back when President Obama goes overseas? No. They prepare the table for the first family so that when he comes back, they're ready. Friends, we have a lot of work to do in Owasso, Oklahoma, and in Bartlesville, and in Claremore, and in Tulsa. We have a lot of work to do to get the master's house ready. And we're waiting for him to come back to make all things new. But until then, we've got chores to do. We've got neighbors to love. We've got people who have physical needs that we need to meet. We've got prayers that we need to pray for each other. We've got the messiness of our life that we've got to get over your hesitation to get to know people and to be able to enjoy the fact that you have a heavenly father who loves you. And he sings over you his love. We have God's word and we have the worship of God's people. And we have, as Anna sets forth for us, the ability to proclaim as a witness to God's world his majesty and his might and invite others to enjoy the fatherly love. And so 
one last question sticks with me as I think about this if I were listening to what I've said so far, and it's this. God tells us so much about himself in Scripture. Why then doesn't he just tell us when he's coming back? When you go to restaurants, you know what happens when you sign your name on the list? You ask a very natural question. How long is the wait? And they'll tell you. The waitresses and the waiters and the maitre d's tell you how long the wait is. Why can't the God of the universe tell us how long the wait is? Maybe because he loves you too much. A student one time asked Martin Luther, um, Professor Martin, if you knew that tomorrow God were to return, what would you do? And Luther looked at his list of things to do and he says, yep, I'd still plant that apple tree. And Luther's point is, if knowing when God was to return, if that changes your life, if it changes the way that you would react, if you knew for certain that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow morning at 8.14 a.m., what would you do different? Would you be more generous? Would you go after a relationship to reconcile it? Seriously, like if you knew, how different would your life be? He could come back at any moment. Jesus says in Luke 12, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And then after he exhorts them not to worry about tomorrow, do you know what Jesus says? He says in verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are awaiting their master to come home for the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The fact that the Bible doesn't tell you when Jesus is to return should not be discouraging to you at all. Even Jesus did more in his 30 some odd years of life than John says all the libraries will be able to contain if they were to be written down. If that is true of Jesus, the Christ, who lived as a real human being, fully a man, fully God for 30 plus years, how much more is that true of the God of the universe who defies time, who stands outside of it? You will spend all eternity worshiping and glorifying him, learning every day something new about him. It should not be discouraging to you that God doesn't tell you and he'll return. He wants you to enjoy him now. So you have God's word and you have worship and you have the witness of God's people. How do you know if you are a person struggling with waiting or not? With this, I'll close. Thomas Watson was an old English Puritan who asked that question. And he says in a book called A Godly Man's Picture, you know that people are not good at waiting when, number one, they're easily frustrated. When God pulls the hinges off of their plans, they turn tail and they run. And they leave the church and they don't come back. They don't answer phone calls. 
because they're mad. And they wallow in their self-pity because God didn't do things just like they expected. They're easily frustrated. He says, too, that they might be discontent. That as a man is angry, not at his sins, he's angry at his condition. That is, I'm angry, God, that you've put me in this place at this time with this job. That's not what I thought the plan was. And you're mad that God didn't consult you. And thank God he didn't. Because you know what? You'd be a lot worse if he had. You're discontent. Are you easily frustrated? Do you struggle with being easily discontented, especially around Christmas? Third, are you easily offended? When your dreams don't go according to plan, do you just bail? When God, with his sweet, divine, loving finger, touches that sore spot of your life, do you run and hide? Are you so easily offended when somebody says something to you that cuts, that's so deeply wounding? Do you just say, I'm never going to associate with them again? We live between the times. And God calls us to be people who are waiting. And lastly, do you always try to self-validate yourself? Do you self-validate? Are you self-vindictive? Um, and maybe another way to say it more precisely. Are you self-vindictive? Which means that instead of being humbled under God's hand of giving you the job you have, the place you have, the children you have, the parents you have, do you recognize that it is up to God's wisdom to submit to his will? Do you justify yourself before God and say, I do not deserve this? Are you easily frustrated? Are you discontent? Are you easily offended? Are you self-vindictive? After 12 days at sea, mayday, mayday, this is Ron Ingram in the Illinois Channel. Can anybody hear me? Dehydrated and starving to death. This is the Coast Guard. We read you. And the Coast Guard finds Ron Ingram 80 miles from where he first made his distress call, and they pick him up. Friends, we believe in a God who, though you may feel like he's abandoned you, he has not. He loves you, and he's not playing a trick on you. He hears your cries, and he is coming to rescue you. And he says, I have come, and the down payment was the death of my son. Do you believe that? That's a lot of collateral. Waiting on God is worth it because he will finish what he started. Though our sin hides the veil of God's love, yet he pierces it yet again. And he shows us in the story of Anna that we have his word and we have the worship of God's people and we have the witness and the proclamation of the gospel to help us wait well. Can we do that? We are awaiting people. And the test of our authenticity is how do we live in the midst of the waiting when you have no control? Waiting is worth it because the gospel says God will finish what he started, and indeed he has. Run to him in faith, believing and taking joy in your Father's love and care. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we wait and hope for you because you are our help and our shield. In you, our hearts rejoice because we trust in your holy name. 
May your steadfast love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we, <clears throat> as we turn our hearts and our minds towards giving this morning, uh, we are reminded uh, that our, our, our worth is not found in the possessions that we have. It is not found in, in what we have, in the things that we have, in, the, in our savings account balances, in our 401ks, but our worth is found in the finished work of Christ, in what he has already done for us, as Pastor Blake said. And so we give with that in mind. Uh, this morning, as we 